This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're introducing you to the candidates for governor ahead of historic primaries June 26th. Historic because they're open to any voter, not just members of a party. Today, Republican Walker Stapleton, he's now state treasurer, I met up with him on a recent Saturday at a Denver-area soccer field. He was cheering on his 10-year-old son, Craig, and talking policy. There's going to be a lot of huge economic challenges that this state is going to face over the next couple of years. And yes, my son just got a goal. You must be lucky. (laughs) You must be lucky, Ryan. Stapleton's family roots in Colorado go back four generations. He moved to Colorado from the East Coast in 2003, He's been involved in tech startups, was an investment banker, and led a real estate investment company. He says he's frustrated by the pace of government decision-making. If you're running a company, as, as I was, the CEO of a company, you make decisions and you scored again. <laughs> Two goals. See, I'm going to throw my hat on the field if he gets a hat trick. In, in government, the analogy I draw is it's kind of like uh, being given a pickaxe and being told to, to uh, make a hole in a dam. Uh, and once you make that hole, the water can come rushing through, uh, but it takes a long time. And Stapleton says he'd move faster and more decisively than the state's current governor, John Hickenlooper. I want to be much more proactive and engaging in the legislative process. You have to be willing to expend capital in doing so and take a lot of arrows, but uh, that's what it means to me uh, to be the CEO of the state. And Walker Stapleton is in our studio now. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. What is the single greatest problem Colorado faces, and how would you solve it? I think it's infrastructure. I think everybody is impacted by traffic, and anybody that wants to have more family time with loved ones, anybody that wants to be more efficient in a professional context has been impacted by our infrastructure problems in the state, which have really grown exponentially as the population has increased by more than a million people over the last decade. There are a lot of potential solutions floating around. The legislature, first off, directed more money to transportation in this most recent session. And there's the possibility of ballot measures this election. There could be a sales tax increase on the ballot to pay for roads and transit. Uh, There could be bonding. Do you support either of those proposals? I support the bonding proposal. I do not support the sales tax proposal in its current form. I believe the department can and should do more. I believe we have dedicated sources of revenue in the general fund that we could and should be using for further bonding for our roads and infrastructure. And before you actually ask government to be an equal player or a large player in spending when it comes to our infrastructure needs. I believe asking voters for a tax increase is the cart before the horse. And if you look, it it, it has not worked when it's been referred to the ballot. So. And, and yet the request potentially for a sales tax increase for roads is not coming from government itself, but from the business community that says this is a priority. It's true. And what, I, what is it that you see that they don't? Do so, so last year I got in a I would say heated argument with Shailen Bott, who was the then head of the Department of Transportation, because he made a decision that he didn't have to go through the treasurer's office or through the legislature to make, which was that the department was going to spend $150 million on new offices for bureaucrats while the rest of us sat in traffic with our crumbling infrastructure. And I told him that that was misplaced priorities for the department. The department ended up spending $50 million uh, for our roads. And to me, 
prioritizing $150 million for new offices for bureaucrats and $50 million for bonding for roads sent the wrong message. And that's why last year we didn't even get a referred ballot initiative for uh, our transportation needs. If you were to cut across all of our state agencies, just one anecdotal example, Ryan, if you were to cut... 10% of executive overhead. And by executive overhead, I meet everything from consultants, uh, and there's plenty of them in state government, let me tell you, to staplers, to paper, to conferences that that people attend in all our departments. You would save approximately $150 million on an annual basis. And we have plenty of money uh, in the general fund that we can and should be using for infrastructure. Just a couple of points. I'll say that CDOT at the time of requesting that money for its headquarters said that it was a question of life and safety that the headquarters that they were in were deteriorating, there were accessibility issues. But to the broader point that you think there's a lot of savings to be had in government, if that's the case, don't you think Republicans who control one chamber of the legislature would have found that by now? Well, I would hope, but there's, you know, there's some sources of revenue that we haven't even explored that that I believe we need to. For instance, I think that there is a lot of unchecked fraud and abuse with our medical marijuana system in Colorado. We've issued uh, at, at a, I think at its heyday, more than 100,000 medical marijuana cards. Uh, you can right now have up to 12 plants as a medical user and have a compassionate caregiver have the other 86 or so plants. There's in some counties a 50% price disparity between medical and recreational marijuana. In some counties, it's more like 30%, but so, 30 to 50%. I'm just giving you an example. Is this an, this so is would a, you like to direct more people to recreational marijuana? No, which no I, would like to to fix, I would like to fix the fraud and abuse around medical marijuana, specifically there being a 50% price disparity and the fact that it's easier for an 18-year-old kid to get a medical marijuana card than it is for her, her, him or her to get a six-pack of beer in today's Colorado. That makes absolutely no sense. Advil's taxed, some states tax prescription drugs, the Fed taxes prescription drug imports. This is a billion dollar plus industry that has a big state regulatory problem. And I believe if we fix it, we will have significant more significantly, excuse me, more revenue that we can apply to our transportation needs. How would that money come in? In other words, by raising taxes on medical? Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Or, or, or changing the, lic- the license process, uh, which is far too easy right now. There's a number of doctors that are in a class action lawsuit with the attorney general's office who you know, write medical prescriptions as fast as their uh, notepads will carry them. Let's talk about education. Thousands of teachers demonstrated at the Capitol and elsewhere last month calling for higher pay in Pueblo. Teachers recently went on strike. Statewide salaries average about $52,000, roughly 15 percent below the national average. It's much lower in some rural areas. Should Colorado teachers be paid more? I would love to find a way for Colorado teachers to be paid more. The the analogy that I draw, and all of us, by the way, have family and, and friends that are teachers, and teacher teaching, I f- firmly believe, is an undervalued profession, not only in Colorado, but nationally. But we, but we, we have to recognize we have structural flaws in education finance in the state that have to be fixed. And the analogy I draw, Ryan, is that if you have three holes in the bottom of the bucket and you keep telling people I need more water to pour into the bucket, but the bucket is empty every time you cross a room, you have to fix the three holes in the bottom of the bucket. And one of our biggest holes, by the way, and you and I have talked about this in the past during my time as treasurer of Colorado, is is our pension system, uh, which sucks uh, more than 20% of a teacher's salary uh, into backfilling obligations with a bankrupt retirement system and doesn't go to teacher salary and doesn't go in the classroom. And if you look uh, right now, I 
believe CBS, uh, Sean Boyd at CBS did a report where she said each student in Colorado gets approximately $13,000 of funding. Uh, the average public school class is approximately uh, 25 students. That's more than $300,000 of, of, of funding uh, in the average public school class. $50,000, uh, which you just pointed out, is about the average salary of a teacher. So that's $300,000 of funding, $50,000 for the teacher's salary. What happens to the other 250000 If you look at Colorado, what's happened to the expansion of education funding in Colorado, uh, the amount of teachers has grown by about 7 or 8%, uh, and, and the amount of administrative overhead has grown by more than 20% in the last decade. I think that's a telltale sign that we have a problem with dollars that should be spent in the classroom not getting there. Okay, and you say that PARA, this is the state pension system, yes. is part of this. Absolutely. We, we have to talk about the fact that the legislature passed uh, a bill to shore up PARA, which had a $32 billion uh, unfunded gap. That's correct. Uh, And it will ask state employees and teachers uh, and others to contribute more to shore the fund up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, the state will be contributing more over the next few years. Uh, I want to know... Which is taxpayers, by the way. Which is taxpayers, (laughs) exactly. I I want you to give what the legislature did a grade. Uh, I would give it a C, a C, a solid C, C, maybe a C plus. There were reports that in the final hours of this debate, which came to the last days of session, that you were making calls to some Republicans in the legislature to kill the measure. Is no, that true? Absolutely not. That is not true. And and uh, no Republican would ever tell you that because it's not true. I wanted to try and get the best deal possible and, and until the last minute possible. I was not physically even at the legislature. I think I was asleep by the time they finally passed the deal, uh, which was, you know, 30 minutes prior to midnight. Uh, but I think that that it, it was a necessary step, and I think that the, and I would and if I had been governor at the time, I would have and I I, I would urge Governor Hickenlooper to sign uh, the bill because the cost of not doing anything outweighs the cost of action in this case, and I can you know tell you exactly why if you're interested. What is one thing you would have changed? What is one thing I would have changed? Uh-huh. I would have expanded the defined contribution. Option to teachers because teachers are because teachers are portable with their professions. They, you know, go to Oklahoma, Nebraska, neighboring states, and they should be able to take their retirement contributions with them. uh, And they're not able to. So that's just one thing I would change. And it was actually some educators who opposed the idea of expanding that option for teachers. Uh, what what is one more area of inefficiency or or I don't know if the word is bloat that you see in terms of spending on education? Because what you're saying is there's a lot of money being spent per classroom, but right. it's not being done wisely. Quickly, so, give me one more example. So I think administrative overhead, and and you're you're talking about the pension system. What's happening is school districts are robbing Peter to pay Paul. They're either freezing teacher salaries or cutting it by the amount that they have to contribute into the pension system in the back end, and so. So uh, teachers are actually suffering the impact of the pensions liability in today's real dollar uh, payment. And, so you go back and, to Paris. Yeah. And I believe also that our 176 school districts, Ryan, should have line item transparency uh, for me as the treasurer of Colorado, but also more importantly for taxpayers and for people that care about our schools. And they don't have that right now. And we need to have that transparency and accountability and budgeting. Line item transparency would mean I could see what about my school? You could see exactly where the dollars are going. You could figure out why if 
there's $325,000 per class in your particular school district? Why, if the teacher's only getting paid $50,000, where does the other money actually end up? Would you have control over that as governor to, to make that happen? Absolutely. In a local control 100%. state? You could yes. say that? Absolutely. Yes. And it all it's all transparency and accountability you, you, and budgeting from law? the top. You'd pass a law to do that? I would issue, I would find out, I'm not a lawyer, but I would, you know, if it took an executive order, I would uh, tell the director of education who, who ran the Colorado Department of Education that he or she uh, would need to make this information readily available on our on on the website for all Coloradans to see. You support the uh, expansion of charter schools. Briefly tell me why. Well, you know, uh, Tom Bozberg is, I would consider, a friend of mine. He's the superintendent he, he, of Denver yes, Public Schools. Denver Public Schools, our largest public school district. He is, uh, he, uh, is not a Republican, uh, but I have great respect for Tom. And Tom and I agree on two chief things, I think. One is that the pension system has been an albatross around the neck of school budgets all across Colorado. And the second is that competition in public education works. And Tom has been a champion for charter schools. And as a result, there has been a significant proliferation of charter schools in the Denver Public School District. I believe there's more teachers actually teaching in charter schools than uh, in public schools as of last year. And uh, and I think um, that's a model that we should take across the state of Colorado. And I give Tom great credit for doing that in Denver's, in our largest school district in Colorado. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and our conversations with the gubernatorial candidates continue today with Republican Walker Stapleton. I want to talk a bit about health care. You've said you would dismantle Colorado's health exchange. That's a hallmark of Obamacare. So is the Medicaid expansion. If you're elected governor, would there be fewer Coloradans on Medicaid? It's about one in four right now. I can tell you that there would be a managed Medicaid model. Right now, the exchange is not working as it should because we've had about a quarter of the people that that we would have liked to have enrolled in the exchange that have actually enrolled. And the reason being is that there's nothing compelling people to enroll because you can get an employer plan with Cigna for the same cost or maybe even cheaper or more efficiently than actually joining the exchange. So there's no carrot there. We have, as you probably know, 14 of our 64 counties, mainly in Western Colorado, that have one choice of health care provider, have seen their health care premiums increase by double digits over the last couple of years. There, is there, there are individuals in Western Colorado that are paying more for home mortgages, uh, I mean, more for health care than they are for their home mortgages. I mean, that is an unsustainable model for health care in Colorado. And so what does here's it mean, what managed I, let me Medicaid? Tell you. Managed Medicaid means is that as the federal government proves itself more and more inept with a capital I at solving our health care needs, what I believe will happen, and I don't know if this is going to happen in six months or a year, they will wash their hands of this problem and they will return back to the states in the form of, of grants, uh, money, and there will be a huge battle over whether to make that money retroactive to the Affordable Care Act, whether to make it inflation adjusted, and and. Eventually, though, they will say to the governors at the state level, hey, you know, you can figure out the future of Medicaid expansion in your particular state, and you're going to have to figure out how to make this sustainable. And in Colorado, when I started as treasurer, the budget was $18 billion. Today, the budget uh, of the state of Colorado is nearing $30 billion, and Medicaid expansion and entitlement expansion are the two largest drivers of budget growth in our state. So, and if, so if the federal government yeah. block grants Medicaid, yes. as, you, as you think it might, what would be your guiding principle for 
for distributing to, the, to, the to, in, to improve access and affordability. And a managed Medicaid model means the following. It means a proliferation of community health care centers. I've got three young kids and I've got a little clinic at King Supers across the street. When my kids get sick, uh, I, I joke that I need a lifetime supply of amoxicillin. I think my youngest daughter, Olivia, likes the pink bubblegum taste of the stuff. But I take my kids across the street to an RN and I pay 10 to $15 for a copay. The pharmacy is right there. If I took them to their pediatrician, uh, I'd be paying four times as much and the insurance company would be billing me six or seven times as much. That is not a cost-effective model. If you go to Denver Health to the emergency room on a Friday night, it looks like Grand Central Station. And the reason is, is because you have indigents there. You have people that have Medicaid. You have people that have private health insurance. You have uh, people that are seeking, you know, shelter from the cold. And then you have the people that actually have the gunshots and the heart attacks and the emergency services. That is not an effective way of providing emergency care. And it's not effective from a care standpoint. And it's not effective from a cost standpoint either. Do you think there would be fewer people on Medicaid then under this model? There, I think, I, I don't know about numbers. I think that the model would look different different though. And different by that, I mean that everybody can't be filtered in the same funnel of care. There has to be a managed system where the people that actually are there for emergency services are there for emergency services. And some people that have Medicaid aren't going to be able to show up in the Denver Health Emergency Room. You would just say they can't be there? I would say, well, they can be there, but they're not going to be able to be treated there. They're going to have to, because because quite frankly, there's some people that are there on a Friday night that don't have emergency level health health, health problems. And so there would be a clinic that they would be to sure to, and, like and a community health clinic. And, and also, I think we need to move to, to plans uh, that are more affordable for younger people that are starting their careers and, and millennials with higher deductibles, catastrophic health insurance. We need to get back to affordability for young people for health care plans because they can't afford it right now. Your campaign has just placed its first TV ad with a claim that I'd like to explore. Yes, please. I was the only treasurer in the country with the courage to support Donald Trump's tax cuts. In fact, treasurers in Kentucky and Utah wrote op-eds in support. Missouri's treasurer went on uh, to Washington to lobby for it. So do you stand by that claim? Absolutely. We, we, we went off the official White House press release for the tax deal. And on that official White House press release, I was the only treasurer listed. And as I told... But that, but that doesn't I told, say that you were the only treasurer to support it. But, it. but we were the only treasurer listed and I didn't have time and I, I didn't actually care to go and poll my colleagues on a state-by-state basis as to whether they were supporting the tax tax plan, the semantics of whether I was the first treasurer in the country or, or one of the first uh, are not what's important. What's actually important is what the tax plan is going to do for Colorado. And under I don't think it was president, first, it was only. It, as, well, the only or one of the only. I mean, one of the first for, for sure. Uh, and and we, took, we took that information based on the press release. And I think uh, rather than the semantics of whether I was the only or one of the only, I think what's important is what the tax plan is going to do for Coloradans. And it's going to give 75% of the people in Colorado Colorado, uh, a tax cut. It's going to take a family that's making $60,000 and reduce their federal tax burden from $1,700 to approximately $100. And it's going to repeal the individual mandate uh, that the president, that the Obamacare uh, um, was at the heart of Obamacare. And last year in Colorado, there were approximately 130,000 Coloradans or so that had to pay a tax because they couldn't afford health insurance. And out of those 130,000 Coloradans, 80% of them have a household income of $50,000 or less. So the tax plan is going to give relief to all those people. So the semantics of whether I was the only or one of the only or the first or one of the first is, it's, is to me, uh, not significant. I think it's a question of whether you do your homework and whether you say what's right. Well, we did do our homework because we took it off the White House press release. So 
Uh, I want to ask you about uh, where you stand with the Trump administration on immigration. Is there anything you disagree with the president about when it comes to that issue? Well, I think immigration is a federal issue and needs to be dealt with by the federal government. Where and, do you, where do you and, and so and so uh, if you'll if you'll let me finish here. And so my uh, differences um, are that I care to focus on what I can do as the governor of the state at the state level to deal with illegal immigration. And I think the heart uh, of the matter from a from a state level is our problem with sanctuary cities in Colorado, specifically in Denver. And I would do everything I can to prevent uh, sanctuary cities from cropping up in the state of Colorado because I think it's important that the governor uh, have the back of law enforcement. And by by that, I mean the sheriffs and DAs that are on the front lines trying to keep our communities safe. It is unconscionable to me how somebody who has committed a crime as an illegal alien, specifically a felony, can be treated with more rights and protections than a law-abiding U.S. citizen. Is there anywhere you disagree with President Trump in terms of the immigration issue federally? Well, I mean, I'm not I'm not um, I'm going to pay attention to the sanctuary city issue. I'm not able as governor to do anything about about the federal government not being able to solve uh, immigration problems. So I'm interested in actual practically applying what I can do with the, in the state of Colorado to make our community safer, not the federal government, you know, n- being unable consistently for years to solve immigration. Do you like the wall? I I like border security, and I think the wall has become a euphemism for border security. Do you like the wall itself? I like more. I like enhanced border security. And if you look at what President Trump proposed, he 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 uh, he said that he would um, that he would give you know legal status to uh, well over a million uh, DACA recipients in order in, in in exchange for enhanced border security, and and that couldn't that didn't get passed by the federal government, unfortunately. As you know, there was another mass shooting at a school last week in Texas. Ten people died. Here in Colorado, the legislature just defeated a so-called red flag warning bill. It would have prevented people who are a risk to themselves or others from having a gun. Do you support that idea very briefly? I support the concept and I support the spirit of the legislation, but I would not have supported that particular piece of legislation because of the arbitrary way in which due process was actually carried out. And in my experience as being treasurer, I've never seen a bill that's been rushed through and introduced in the last 10 days uh, that has been well thought out and well conceived. And I think this this bill from a due process standpoint was ill-conceived. What did it need? So it needed a, a, a more thorough process where already there's a process in place where county attorneys can adjudicate uh, through the legal process somebody who is mentally ill. And I, I, I preferred uh, Senate Bill 270, which is now sitting on Governor Hickenlooper's desk, a a, a bipartisan product uh, that actually will enhance mental health services uh, and actually hopefully enhance reporting as well. Um, That is a more um, holistic approach uh, to mental health uh, than simply empowering people um, sometimes on an arbitrary basis to to take somebody's uh, guns. And there was no remediation for false claims or uh, or or anything like that. And there were so several me, check-ins with the judge. I'll say that that uh, well, the 182 waiting period I think was arbitrary in the bill. So thank you for your time. Yes, it's run out so quickly. I appreciate it. Republican Walker Stapleton is running lightning f- round for governor. We Thanks for having me. Interviewing all the major party candidates before the primaries, which are open to all voters in Colorado, as we said. You can hear the conversations we've already aired and read transcripts at CPR.org. And we are scheduled to speak with Democrat Chair. Polish next Wednesday. This is Colorado Matters.
If you like political ads, this is the year for you, especially when it comes to the governor's race. There are two contested primaries, and both have their share of wealthy candidates and donors. Yet there's a big black hole in terms of what's disclosed to voters. CPR's Ben Marcus reports. If you didn't know who Jared Polis was, you probably do now. The Democratic member of Congress has 5,000 broadcast TV ads running through next month, like this one. I'm Jared Polis, and I'm running for governor because Colorado faces real challenges. Using public records, we can tell you how many ads he's running, what markets and stations, when they're running, and how much they cost. All the ads are produced and paid for by his campaign. But there's another kind of political ad you're going to see that we can't tell you much about. Ads like this one, supporting one of Polis's challengers, Democrat Mike Johnston. Turning around an at-risk school, helping every senior get accepted to college. That's a spot from Frontier Fairness. It's a super PAC supporting Johnston. TV stations are not required to tell the public anything about how much it costs, how many spots are running, or where. The federal law that regulates broadcast licenses says stations don't have to post that information because these groups aren't officially part of the candidate's campaign. You know, they certainly look like uh, campaign commercials for the, from that campaign. That's Owen Perkins, who runs a group called Clean Slate Now Action that aims to reform campaign finance. Polis is self-funded and has no PAC. His campaign had no comment for this story. A PAC can raise unlimited amounts of money, but candidates can't control or coordinate it. About half of the candidates running for governor have PACs supporting them. Yeah, they're becoming common. And one thing that troubles me a little bit, I don't know if it should, but is the degree to which people just take it for granted that that's the candidate's PAC. And legally, it's not supposed to have anything to do with the candidate. The PACs are spending millions of dollars on TV ads, but we'll never know the details. And here's the thing. TV stations readily give this information to the other campaigns. So the campaigns know what their challengers are spending, but the stations withhold the information from the public. TV stations CPR contacted either didn't respond to requests for comment or declined interviews. Meredith McGee is the executive director of Issue One, which advocates against big money in politics. She says Colorado could do something about this. A state government does not um, regulate a federal licensee like the television station. However, they could place a requirement on anyone running for state office to make these disclosures. These groups do have to disclose basic expenditures. We know that the PAC supporting Johnston has spent $1.6 million on advertising, for instance, but that's all the detail we have. We don't know how much is going to TV or radio or social media. The PAC, Frontier Fairness, didn't respond to requests for comment. McGee says the right to know where the money is spent is important, and states like California and Massachusetts have passed laws to require more disclosure than federal law, even requiring the top donors to be listed in the actual ad. It's not in any way a restriction on the speech or any kind of uh, requirement for what can be said or any kind of censorship. It's simply saying, let's give American citizens this information so they can make up their own mind. That's a fundamental principle that started back in the 1920s when radio was first invented. Channel 7 in Denver was posting the details for these commercials from super PACs in the governor's race. When we reached out to ask them why, they had no comment other than to say that the contracts would be removed from the website. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News.
CDOT, the state transportation agency, is wetting drivers' appetites with an eye-catching video of a fix for a notorious bottleneck, I-70 at Floyd Hill, west of Denver. This video is only a concept now, but the idea is to add an additional lane and new tunnel westbound to ease congestion. The video posted to YouTube. Shortly after something big happened, the legislature agreed to spend $645 million on transportation over the next two years. So where's that money going to go? Maybe Floyd Hill? Maybe some other congestion headache near you? Let's ask the head of CDOT, Mike Lewis. Welcome to the program, Mike. Ryan, great to be with you. So ski traffic is a chief complaint in Colorado. I suppose it takes on a different name in summer. Uh, will you spend any of the new money from the legislature on that project that you are dangling in front of drivers with right. that video or on the I-70 corridor in general? Right. So as you know, and I think most of your listeners know, the I-70 corridor is critical to the economic health of the of the whole state of Colorado, that $20 billion a year tourism economy and getting up to the mountains and all access to the outdoors, it's I-70 is the way to get there. And it's obviously got its challenges and it's had its challenges over over the years. About three years ago, two years ago, we opened up a a westbound peak period shoulder lane, which helped, I think, ski traffic coming back. Um, And it was an interim solution. We have another plan to do a a compendium of the, the westbound. Um, and we could do that beginning next year if the funding if the funding's available. If the funding's available. So mm-hmm. to my critical question there, the legislature allocated more money. Will it go at all to I-70? Some of it will go to I-70, I believe, particularly not to the big Floyd Hill project. And I'll talk about that in a second. So not to the big Floyd Hill project. The big Floyd Hill project is, is going to need a lot more money than what the legislature brought today. Okay. What might go to I-70? How might it change because of what the legislature did? How might it affect okay, people's so, commutes? So what the legislature did this year, which is which is great. I mean, the fact that transportation investment was on the front burner for the legislature all session is, is, is good. Um, there's obviously a lot of talk um, with the chamber and others about more investment in transportation. But what really came across from the bill, Senate Bill 1, this year was a one-time um, contribution to infrastructure, about $350 million this year to CDOT and about $72 million to each of the counties and the cities. Um, now, $350 million um, is a lot of money, but it's against a identified need from all across the state of over $10 billion. So what kind of dent will it make and might it make that on the it, I-70 corridor? It it can probably contribute to one of the key projects that we've been talking about, which is the I-25 gap between Denver and, and Colorado Springs. That's a critical project. But widening I-25. Widening I-25. Because it's, it's two lanes in each direction. Two lanes. It's been that way since the early 1960s. And the, with the growth in both Denver and the Springs, it's obviously, um, you know, it, it's far outstripped what the highway can produce. Okay. So I-25 will benefit to some extent. Very, very likely. Perhaps with the money available, we can make that westbound peak period um, shoulder lane on I-70 from the Veterans Memorial Tunnels up to Empire, which is going to help. But the Floyd Hill project that you identified in the beginning of the segment is a $500 million project. And that's going to need much more investment than what came this with this legislative session. And as you say, in the background of this conversation is the possibility that there might be um, one of or two ballot measures this election. One might raise taxes for roads, one might create some bonding, some borrowing for transportation. I wonder, do you release these videos, the one like the mock-up, the sort of fly-through of Floyd Hill? Do, 
Is that actually something of a campaign ad from the Colorado Department of Transportation saying, hey, drivers, this is what you'd get if you'd pass bonding or if you'd pass a tax increase? I wonder how strategic that is. Part of it is we, we are involved. We've been involved in an environmental review process with the Clear Creek County and all the, the communities up along the I-70 corridor for, for a number of years. And the creation of this project came out of that um, public review process. So the timing, ha- though. Timing is everything, uh-huh. Ryan. Timing is everything. No, the, the project um, is at the development stage that we can produce that video and we'll do that for other projects because it's also important to to identify to the people that are going to be using the highway and of what does what does a project mean to them? What will it actually do for them? And I think that's a good example. It's very difficult to picture um, what an improvement would be to Floyd Hill without seeing those renderings. And I think with technology today, we can actually do that. And I suppose the upside is that... You get to sit here and say, and if you pass a tax, that might get passed? I think that's that's true. I mean, if, if you know, what our, our job is to say, here are, are, first of all, it's to maintain the highways and the transportation systems of the state with the resources we have as efficiently as we can. That's always going to be our job. But we also work with all of our planning partners all across the state to identify what they believe at a local level the needs are. And we put that list together, and it's a it's a list of 10, you know, $10 billion worth of projects. And so we need to be able to say, with whatever revenues are provided to us, these are the projects we can do. It's interesting that figure was floating around the legislative session, all session. It mm-hmm. was $9 billion, mm-hmm. a $9 billion backlog. It's grown to 10 now? 9, 10, that's a rounding error when you're talking about those. I hate to say it because if it's just okay. inflation, if you have a 3% inflation on $9 billion, you're going to hit 10 very quickly. Uh, let's go back to the uh, proposed widening of I-25 between Monument and Castle Rock, so south of Denver. Uh, Concerns there over adding a tow lane on Mm -hmm. that stretch. Does the money from the legislature mean you are rethinking the tow lane on I-25? No, we aren't. The the reason for putting in, and we call it a managed lane, it is a tow lane, it's really to, as growth is going to come to this region, we know it's going to come. Um, if we keep building more and more highway lanes, they will eventually get filled up. And I think you can see that from 10 years ago when T-Rex was finished. This is a portion of I-25 through about the tech center. And for about a day, it seemed to make a difference. <laughs> and if, if that project were done, and you know, back then, if there was a managed toll lane put in, then you would have maintained a level of reliability. Um, and if you needed to get to a meeting, if I needed to get to CPR to do an interview, I could have used the toll lane to ensure I would get there in time. That's really, we're using those on US 36. We're using an I-25 north of the city. We're doing it on Central 70, the big project between um, I-25 out to DIA. So these are these are tactic strategies to get more capacity out of the highway for a longer period of time. But I hear the head of the state's transportation agency saying you cannot build your way out of congestion. That is true. Okay. Is it also true that no new lanes would be built in Colorado in terms of state highway that aren't at least, at least partly toll lanes? Is no, that just- I don't, no, I don't think that is the case. I think we're obligated to look at um, when we're adding capacity to a project. Um, it, do toll lanes make sense in that location? And I would say that in the, in the metro area, where there's a high volume and a high growth, I think they will probably do make sense. Other parts of the state which do have a capacity problem, they may not make sense. Okay. So there could be some new state highway without tolling. Absolutely.
That's a departure, I think, from your predecessor who said the only way new lanes get built here is with tolling. I think if, you know, if we were building, adding a climbing lane on US 160 in La Plata County, um, it's unlikely that that would be a tolling. We uh, put out on Twitter that we were talking to you and we asked for people's questions. So I want to get to some of those right now. Uh, John Stieg wants to know uh, whether your agency is embracing the self-driving car. We're not only embracing it, 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 it is, it, we believe it's going to be there in the future. What we need to do is prepare for it. Now, I don't think we're going to see a lot of self-driving cars in the next five to 10 years, but they will, really? they will, they will be here, uh, you know, ubiquitously around our highways. Okay. What we will see is connected vehicles. We will see vehicles that are communicating with one another. We're see, going to see vehicles that are communicating with the infrastructure so that warning um, we'll be able to come, um, you know, from, from car to car. And so the driver will benefit from that. And I think that's the, the, the few- idea that, that there might be fewer accidents because of distracted driving. Right. Or something the, you know, breaking. I think it, it's pretty clear that the number one cause of accidents is the driver. It is us. We are the problem. And the more that we can take that decision-making away from the driver, the safer the roadways will be, but that's not going to come overnight. Do you think that it's a way to address congestion and to address the accidents that lead to a 30-minute commute becoming an hour? I think it's going to help. But I think that what we have to be aware of is that if if autonomous or when autonomous vehicles become um, more – a higher percentage of the, of the of vehicles that are out there, you will be able to get more capacity on a lane basis if all the vehicles are autonomous because they'll all be – able to move more quickly and, and closer. But if they're autonomous, we actually may put more vehicles on the highway because instead of me driving my car to work and leaving it there all day, maybe that car goes home. And if that car goes home, we're actually adding a trip to the highway that isn't there today. Well, that's interesting. And I would if, have, I would, intuitively, I would have thought it would be a reduction, but you're saying it I, might I, not I, be. I, th- I think there's a push and pull on both ends of that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more study needs to be done. Mike Lewis joins us. He is executive director of the Colorado Department of Transportation. Okay, another question from Twitter. This is from Royce Rosewood. She wonders about your agency's commitment to public transit, bike lanes, and pedestrian infrastructure. And let's ask that with some specificity. Sure. Will money that the legislature allocated over the next two years, for instance, go to something other than highways? Yes. And I think and what? I think the um, – I rode my bike to work today, for example. Um, so in a, particularly in, in the metro area, there are um, – again, we can't just build highways and think we're going to solve the transportation problem. It is a system of transportation. And so RTD, bus service um, – uh, bike lanes, bike bike trails are going to be a part of the metro um, transportation solution. Um, ride sharing is going to become a much greater part of the um, uh, of how people get around, particularly in, in metropolitan areas. So, ride sharing, autonomous vehicles, which we talked about a little earlier, that may actually help promote ridership on RTD because it's going to help solve that first and last mile challenge. How do I get from my home to the to the RTD station? There may be um, opportunities with autonomous vehicles, with ride-sharing, expanded ride-sharing program that's going to help that. We're actually going to get m- more people into transit than than we have today. Can you say specifically that money the legislature allocated this year will go to something other than highway projects? 
Um, we this year we have um, it's a very sort of limited funds that are identified towards specific projects. So those I can't say specifically whether the the one time funds for this year are going to go to um, uh, highway projects that include um, bike transportation, but the bigger picture. If the what is on a ballot measure for this fall or what would come in 2019, those those dollars would be some of those dollars would be dedicated to um, non-highway um, transportation. Okay, that is if there's a tax increase on the ballot, if there's bonding, we have uh, just about a minute, and I want to have you reflect on something I am hearing particularly from the Republican candidates for governor. Mm-hmm. CDOT is bloated. CDOT is administratively overloaded and that there could be a lot more money for roads if you would right-size. Just briefly, what do you say? I I think I I would encourage all the candidates to come and sit with us and go through the details. I don't think that is the case. I think that um, we spend um, almost $750 million a year just on maintaining the existing infrastructure that we have. And um, there's very little... Um, money available for capacity improvement projects, and that's what's on the um, both what the one-time funds that came this year, and and what would be able to be done if the ballot measure passes. But you're offering them an invitation. Come on, down. absolutely. Okay, Mike Lewis, CDOT's executive director. It's the Colorado Department of Transportation. Thank you. Good to be with you. Next week, PBS shines a light on a dark chapter of American history. The Chinese exclusion law is the first time that a group is singled out by name as being undesirable. At the Angel Island Immigration Station in San Francisco Bay, Chinese people coming to America were detained and interrogated in the early 1900s as a result of that act. This is the subject of PBS's documentary next week. And as these immigrants waited, these detainees wrote poetry on the walls. That writing inspired Denver poet Chao Lim Go. The poems in the men's barracks are still there today, but the women's were destroyed in a fire. And Go imagines what those lost poems may have been in a collection called Islanders. We spoke with her in 2016. And welcome to the program. Hey. Will you briefly set up some of the historical context behind the Angel Island Immigration Station? Well, the Angel Island Immigration Station was um, an outgrowth of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. In the late 1800s, America suffered a bank panic and depression. A bank panic? Yes. The Chinese had come during the California Gold Rush to build the transcontinental railroads. But after the bank panic, when the, the jobs dried up, you know, they were out of work, the whites were out of the work, and the Chinese became the target of white anger. That resulted in the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. And how does that lead to the creation of a station like this? The Chinese were at first detained in a warehouse in San Francisco. And because of safety issues and the government wanted a place where the Chinese could be detained without, you know, the fear of escape, just like Alcatraz, right across I the see. bay. An immigration version of Alcatraz. And these were Chinese immigrants who had just come to the United States or were hoping to make it here, or these were those who had already landed? It's a mix of both. Many of the immigrants 
were new immigrants trying to come into the United States. Okay. But some of the Chinese who, who were detained on Angel Island, they were in the U.S. before. Some of them were U.S. citizens, some of them might not be, but they were detained when they were trying to re-enter the United States. And how long might they spend at, um, at Angel Island? Two weeks is generally the minimum as they go through the whole interrogation process. There were some cases, especially if you fail the interrogations and you appeal and you fail and you appeal, it can take months. And I think the longest, it's either a year and a half or almost two years. What were these interrogations like? Do you have some sense of what they were being asked or screened for? The biggest category of you know immigrants trying to come in were families of Chinese who are already in the United States. That was one of the exceptions of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It allowed for immediate families of Chinese already in the U.S. And um, in order to prove that there's a relationship, let, let's say, if I come in and I claim that you are my father, okay, they will ask me a set of questions. Things is like, where is the rice bin in your family home? Where is the rice bin? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you know, what direction you know, do your house face? Oh, how far are you from the village square? And it's all the minutiae details of everyday life. They will ask me the same questions. They will ask you the same questions. And then they would see if they matched up. Mm-hmm. And if they matched up, they say, okay, this is a legit, legitimate relationship. Okay. If they did not, I'm sorry, you're going home. Or there would be appeals and mm-hmm. you would be on Angel Island for longer. Mm-hmm. And so why do you think these immigrants wrote poetry on the walls? There are probably two parts to that. It seems that there's a tradition of Chinese travel poetry. So in in Imperial China, you're not allowed to write unauthorized histories. And travelers, would, when they go from inns to inns, they actually be poetry boards where you can comment on like current affairs or you know things they are not allowed to say, otherwise say in public. Huh. The Angel Island poems might be an outgrowth of that. But I think the other reason why they wrote poems was... They were lonely. They were homesick. You know, they felt that they had failed their families. You know, many of them came to the U.S. as, you know, the family sent them. You know, they saved up all their money to come to the U.S. And they said, I failed. I'm still stuck here. And so were the poems in Chinese? Were the poems in English? Um, The poems are in Chinese. And most of the Chinese immigrants during that time came from the Canton province. So the Chinese script is the same whether it's in Mandarin or Cantonese. I believe they are intended to be read in Cantonese. In Cantonese. Your book is a collection of poems, and you do imagine what the women might have written. Mm-hmm. Again, the, the women's writing was destroyed in a fire, correct? Yes. So I'd like to have you read an excerpt from one. Um, this is The Waves. The Waves. His father died suddenly, leaving a sick wife and four young girls. He decided to go to America, stake a claim on Golden Mountain, and come back for me. He wrote to me of Angel Island, where officers scrutinized his papers, and doctors made him stand naked as they inspected his eyes. He built a business selling groceries, sent money home, and came back to marry me. I threw up on the seas. He calmed me, made love to me. The first time I cried, Silently, I had not been with another man, but I knew he had a woman. What could I do? There was no land in sight. This is in part about the maritime journey that Mm -hmm. happens before they land. Yes. 
I threw up on the seas. He calmed me, made love to me. How was it to imagine their experience? You, you visited Angel Island. Yes, I have. It was both an interesting and a terrifying experience to, to imagine. And this poem in particular, I literally wrote it from the exclusion laws of the time. And in 1924, the laws changed that even the wives of the, of the Chinese could not come in to the, into the United States. Here I imagine what a woman who left China before the laws were put in place, but she arrived in the United States when the laws were in place and had to be deported. How does this relate to your own story, which eventually leads to Denver? So I'm an immigrant. I'm a U.S. citizen now. But uh, I came as a student I stayed on to work. I'm considerably more privileged than the Chinese back in, you know, the early 1900s. But when I first started working, it was during a time when there were many more applications for a work visa than there were visas available. And openings, yeah. I actually got my visa through a lottery process. So I I understand how arbitrary a lot of these decisions can be. Would you recommend going to Angel Island? Totally. Totally. (laughs) You know, I think it's a very important history, especially at this time of, you know, this moment in the United States. Secondly, it's a beautiful place. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Denver poet Tiao Lim Go's book is called Islanders. We spoke in 2016. The Chinese Exclusion Act, which spawned the poetry written on walls by detainees, is the subject of a special next week on PBS. It debuts May 29th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.